You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends. Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness. And we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. And this is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for all of us to get our hands dirty. Pastor. Dr. Robin. Here we are again. How you, how you doing? Well, um, it's that part of the semester where I am tired and I'm like, oh, we still have a ways to go. Right. You, you haven't got, you haven't gotten through that much. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm tired. Um, but I love my students. My students are asking good, really good questions. Um, so I'm good. I'm good, good. and tired. I'm glad that I'm glad that academia is treating you well this semester. That's not always the case. So no. How are you? I'm good. I'm also well. I have. Um, I decided this week that I was going to finally do some self care and make some overdue health appointments that I've been needing to make, and so this month will be flooded with um, people looking at my body <laughs> and uh, telling me all the things that are wrong with it. Right. <laughs> so I started with two appointments this morning and it's just going to keep going from there. Yeah. Um, I get in these phases where I don't really want to go to the doctor. And so I don't. Yeah. Uh, and then I get in other phases where I'm like, ah, fuck it's time. All right, yeah. let's just do it all at once. And literally like, so that I know that this month of the year is the month that every single thing is due. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I'm, uh, I'm working on that and I've had a very busy week, but I'm glad to be taking some time and sitting down with you. Yeah. I would like to be that person who like denies that we need to go to the doctor, but I'm too paranoid yeah. that there's something wrong <laughs> with me. <laughs> and so like, even, yes. even there's a mole on my face that since I've been on tea has changed. Mm-hmm. And so is it like, because my body has changed or is it some <laughs> other reason? And so I took a picture of it and, um, sent it to my doctor. He was like, well, you know, if it's changed, you should probably be seen. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, that's not me. Yeah. You and my partner are very similar. Um, he always believes that um, something uh, that there's something much worse than him than there wrong with him than there likely is right. whenever something like starts to move or tweak or hurt yeah. or yeah. change. Yeah. And so I am um, I am uh, I am not like that. I am yeah. a radical procrastinator, and um, my my dog is just going to bark during this episode. It is what it is. I can't I can't deal with it. So it's okay. We we accept all animals. We here. do. We do. But yeah, I am I am I am 
entering into a month of self-care or at least uh, self-exploration yes. of care. I don't know that I'm going to do much care after the appointments because, uh, you know, that's the way I roll. But right. I'm, at least, I'm at least making the appointments, which makes me feel like I'm a grown-up. Yeah, good. Um, well, what, you know, what are we, what are we talking about today? It's, uh, already halfway through February and the world still turns. It still does. I had a really, uh, unsettling thing happen to me this weekend and I thought that I would share that story and then, um... I think that'll lead us into a pretty critical conversation around yeah. um, a topic that I think, I mean, both of us have, have friends who have, or, or, you know, contacts who have been a part of the overdose and um, drug, drug epidemic over the last yeah. few years. So I was uh, driving to my local hardware store to get some washers to hang a television. That's not important to the story, but right. that's where I was going. Yeah. And in my rearview mirror, there was a truck um, in the in the lane beside me. We were both headed the same direction. And I saw in my rearview mirror a car kind of coming up really, really quickly behind me. And right. watched in my rearview mirror as this car sideswiped the truck that was behind me. And... Uh, passed me on the right uh, while it pinballed off of the curb Mm. as we were heading into a a very heavily um, pedestrian area of, of my neighborhood. And, this this car continued to just really not um, it, it the driver did not have control of the car and yeah. as I continued to follow the car I watched as it slammed into three parked cars um, just up ahead and when it hit the third vehicle it spun several times and launched itself into a telephone pole mm. um, the. The car hit on the driver's side door. Um, I was the first one out because I was right behind this right. car. And uh, another car was kind of coming out one of the side streets. So myself and that driver were kind of the first ones to the vehicle and couldn't really get to the driver because the airbags had gone off and the door was so damaged that we couldn't even see inside the vehicle. Um, come to find out that... And, and I will also say, um, I do not know the status of the gentleman that was injured. Um, I, I, I hope that he uh, survived his injuries. He um, was unable to get out of the car on his own. The paramedics mm. helped him, but I'm hoping that he is, is okay. Um, I haven't heard otherwise, which in a town like Chattanooga, usually you do. Yeah. All of a the sudden, there are several people gathered around that weren't immediately there in the vicinity of this accident. And as we started sharing stories, come to find out that about a half a mile behind where the accident occurred, this gentleman had was in a, a gas station parking lot and had begun seizing in his car 
And this gas station, based on the part of town that it's in, keeps um, keeps drugs behind the counter to counteract the effect of of overdoses. And they gave the Narcan to the driver. And when the driver came to from seizing, he freaked out and fled the scene, Mm. Um, turned the car on and freaked out and fled. Um, He was overdosing um, and had overdosed to a point that may have led to death had the clerk not stepped in and given him the medicine. Right. On the way out of the gas station, he hit a parked vehicle that was getting gas and he continued onto the road until the next vehicles that he interacted with were myself and the truck Mm. that he hit that I saw in my rear view mirror. And so um, of the six vehicles that this guy hit before he violently wrecked himself, I was the only vehicle that came out unscathed. I was super shaken up. I was really like overwhelmed. I, 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 um, I mean, I think any time you see that kind of violence, it's, um, it triggers the kind of adrenaline in you that, that just makes you both fearful for those that were harmed and grateful for, mm-hmm. um, your own, your own safety. Right. Um, but it, it really put into perspective for me. I mean, this was 2 PM on a Saturday afternoon yeah. and um, drug overdoses and drunk driving and any kind of impaired uh, car or any kind of motor vehicle. Um, I mean, it waits for no one. There's no, right. you know, there's no time of day that this tends to happen more than others. Um, you know, Nighttime drunk driving accidents are more prevalent simply because it's dark and it's harder to see. But I mean, the time of the day, it it struck me that the time of day was not of consequence in this instance. And this gentleman, as he hit these three cars that were parked um, in front of me, these cars were parked right in front of our favorite pizza place. And a family of eight had just, all three of the cars belonged to the same family. And the family of eight had just exited those three cars to walk across the street to enter the pizza place. Mm. And it included several small children. And they were literally standing on the sidewalk across the street, having just crossed as they watched this guy slam into their three vehicles and then crash. And it just put into perspective a lot of things for me. I know this happens to a lot of people and we all um, have times where we escape. We feel like we've escaped or thwarted a situation that could have been harmful for us. But it 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 shook me up. And I, I you know, I'm texting with you and sent you pictures and like told you what's happening. And um, it was it was crazy. It was just really, really crazy. And uh, once again, we're sharing that, you know, for the second episode in a row, like I didn't want to deal with the police. Right. But I stayed because I was the only person other than the people in the parking lot at the gas station a half mile back that saw everything that happened. Right. Because I was, I saw him in my rear view mirror. I saw him past me and then I saw everything that happened in front of me. Yeah. So I stick around and I, um, you know, give a report and um, it, 
you know, it, it is what it is. And they, they, they take this gentleman to the hospital. But it, it really got me thinking about the drug epidemic that we mm-hmm. are up against right now and um, compelled me to actually do a little bit of um, investigating to kind of see what it was that we were dealing with because there was an article the next day in the Chattanooga paper that 10 people had overdosed just that weekend. 10 people had died just this past weekend in Chattanooga from overdoses, most of which were because of the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Um, A few that weren't, but 10 deaths in one weekend in a town my size is a lot. Mm -hmm. And 2022 is shaping up to be one of the worst years in this country's history as it relates to deaths by overdose and this epidemic continuing to, to, to get worse. Mm. I, there were four times as many people in the U.S. that died from drug overdoses last year than died from homicide. Mm. And we had almost 100,000 drug overdoses in a year. 100,000. 100,000 people, um, which is 36% higher than from 2018. Hmm. So from 2018 to 2021, in those three years, our overdose death totals increased 36%. Um, Four states occupy... 30% of drug overdose deaths. So there are four states in our, in our country that are at the top of overdose deaths, Um, Pennsylvania and Ohio. I mean, there's been a lot of talk on Ohio and kind of what, what is going on there in the Rust Belt about, you know, factories shutting down and people losing their job. And there've been several great documentaries on that, but same with Pennsylvania, those two States and then Florida and California, those four States alone account for 30% of the deaths in this country from overdose. Mm. And I am, I'm curious about how we have found ourselves here. I mean, I know that there are some very logical answers and, yeah. and answers that feel very obvious, but I think that there are also um, answers that have created or have been caused by additional barriers being set up or additional issues within our policy. Um, and I thought that would be something interesting for us to chat about today. We we don't talk much about drug use and um that kind that that arena of uh, crisis in our country, yep. and so I thought that would be an interesting place for us to start today. Yeah, I I um I feel like Tennessee there is also an opioid crisis in Tennessee. I remember talking with um, our friend Jeff Clark, who 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 told me that. And that, and so, and I know that a lot of cities and states are not immune to the various crises. Um, and I know addiction and recovery is complicated work. Um, but I, I think about my own family, for example, my uncle, who upon re- returning from Vietnam had to 
drink and take drugs just to deal with the PTSD. And so, um, as we've said in other places, un- unprocessed trauma turns into oppression. Um, so, I wonder if that's part of the crisis, unprocessed trauma, which we all have unprocessed trauma, and we all have different vices that we use to cope. Um, But, and I know that there's been lots of shows made about the opioid crisis and other drug-related crises. Um, And I, I have nothing but compassion for these folks. I, I wish that we were like France and provided government assistance for people to get off drugs. If they want to. Exactly. Exactly. If they want to. Um, yeah, you mentioned Tennessee and the Tennessee statistics aren't, are about middle of the road for the country. Um, about 3% of our deaths are from drug overdoses. Mm -hmm. So 3% of the state's deaths. Um, but that increased at a rate of eight and a half percent over the last three years. So whereas Mm -hmm. the country increased by 30%, um, Tennessee increased by eight and a half. Mm-hmm. And the that's about 50% higher than the national average of the death rate. Uh-huh. And so um, we are we are, as you said, not immune to this to this problem. And I think you're right that unprocessed trauma is a really um, critical piece of this puzzle. It feels it feels like many other issues or systemic um challenges that we face that, you know, this is once again, kind of a Venn diagram that has so many overlaying circles mm-hmm. to create the, the ultimate um, surfacing of the issue. One of the things that I was really interested to find out as I was looking through this, this work was that in 2020, um, Almost a third of the states in this country cut their addiction treatment programs from their yearly budget. Cut it. Cut it. Yeah. And so, you know, we have all of these states who uh, who are not contributing to the lives of people who have no income or are suffering unnecessarily from um, systemic racism right. or unprocessed trauma. Um, or unemployment or any of the other thing, homelessness. But we also have policyholders that are not keeping up their end of the bargain when it comes to creating opportunities for these people to, to get help. Right. And if policymakers and other stakeholders continue to kind of keep up these barriers of to treatment – for these kinds of substance abuse issues, we're going to continue to see this problem escalate. Right. And if we have escalated this much in three years alone, through the course of a pandemic where people's health was at the forefront of every single news station lead article for 18 months, then 
we're gonna, this is going to be a crisis like we've never seen. Um, and I don't, I just don't know how we, how we get around that. Right. I mean, you know, add into that, that, you know, courts and jails and prisons aren't providing, you know, access to treat drug, um, issue, drug addiction issues. Um, our insurance, you know, our, our, the insurance networks that we have in this country are not providing the kind of care that is necessary within their plans to people for this to create harm reduction. I mean, we insurance things. insurance companies won't even hardly cover mental health coverage. Right. You know, we can't even get people into therapy. And so, you know, I think people are taking their mental health into their own hands and trying to do whatever they can to feel better. And, you know, I know, I know there's lots of opinions about drug use and lots of, um, lots of dogmas, I guess, that derive from religion. You know, it's immoral to do drugs. Uh, and that's what causes all of our problems is drug use. But and, and we should be able to fix ourselves. And if we can't exactly. fix it, then God can fix it. But if if I learned anything during my PhD program, which was watching um, what was the HBO show on? Um, oh gosh, what was that series? I think it was on HBO or Showtime about drug use um, and drugs, and it it um, it involved the police and. It was in Baltimore, and I can't remember the name of it. Are you talking about The Wire? Yes, The Wire. Yes. Okay, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if I learned anything from The Wire, the government is and, – and I've known this for years, but like seeing it dramatized. But the government is just as complicit in drug proliferation as people who are using it. And right. – and in many respects, how did we come about, come about with crack houses? It was the government giving crack to black families. So who, so who really has the problem? Right. Have you had a chance to watch Dope Sick yet? No, but I know that you watched it and we're very slow on this end. It, it's okay. Um, I, I was, I mean, I really, I enjoyed the book. Um, but I really enjoyed the series. Michael Keaton deserved, uh, you know, an, an Emmy for for that work. It was it was really well done. Um, but one and and I think that I I mean I I not think I do agree with you in that the government is complicit in this. Um, but the the way that we have allowed pharmaceutical companies to right. prop themselves up as the wealthiest companies in right. this country is vomitous. I mean, it's sickening. Right. Um, and the the family that initially put uh, opioids on the market, um, the Sackler family, back in you know the nineteen nineties when when all of this was was getting really bad. I mean, it is it is. It is mind blowing to watch yeah. the twisting of words and the 
rationalization of process through yep. this dramatization of, of what was happening. But I'll also tell you, like, that drug company was in bed with the FDA. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they found ways to get the FDA to either remove or not require certain labels right. be attached to prescriptions. Right. And it was in that negotiation with the FDA that the opioid crisis started. And we finally got a little bit of a handle on it in the 2000s when these series of, of um, investigative reporters and uh, FBI agents were able to determine that the FDA was also complicit in right. all of the deaths and required them to put the labeling back on. Yeah. You know, these things are, this is a systemic issue because again, it is part of, it is a makeup of our systems that yep. are allowing all of these things to transpire and take place. Yeah. Yep. Um, and so that is a plug for dope sick. If you haven't watched it, I would definitely recommend that you do so. It'll it'll help you even frame more of the history that brought us to this point. Um, you know, but I'm also curious because we talk a lot about community mm-hmm. on this podcast and the ways that community can or should be the baseline for how we are and and should be in the world. This epidemic, if if nothing else, has proven just how critical community should be mm-hmm. um, in in our neighborhoods and and in our in our being with each other. Um, because I have to believe that a component of drug use and then accelerating to drug abuse is directly related to the loneliness epidemic that we're also facing Mm -hmm. and the siloing of ourselves into, you know, being people that only relate to one another online. Right. Um, That's, that's a tough thing to navigate because we created that for ourselves and now we're seeing the repercussions of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, you make a good distinction around drug use and drug abuse because many of us use drugs from alcohol to prescription medicines to marijuana to marijuana or cannabis right marijuana was a word invented by uh the government um and and there's a way to responsibly use drugs and there's a way to abuse drugs. And I think about, again, my own family's uh, use and abuse of drugs. Uh, you know, my uncle can't just have one beer. And he – and it's not even good beer. You know, it's it's, right. it's like Budweiser and Bud Light. And, and I'm like – Gosh, how about how about better beer? How about an IPA? <laughs> of yeah. course, it, you know, it's it's harder to drink that. It's harder to drink that many beers and get the effects of 
what addicts require because of the fullness factor, because, you know, beer just simply, you know, like fills up your belly and makes your gut swollen. Yeah. But I, but when I think about my own family and their own abuse of substance, it's partially because they haven't had access to the same kind of mental health care that I have or you have. And so there is, I think, a loneliness factor there. And so how much how much of this is my responsibility? Not responsibility, but because they are my blood family, how much do I contribute or how much do I draw a boundary? For me, it's been drawing a boundary because of my own safety concerns and, and whatnot. But when it comes to Publix, what is our role in care? I'm so glad that there are these groups and ministries that administer Narcan because it really does save lives. But what more should our communities be doing to mitigate the harmful impact of drug abuse? And how do we how do we pivot and help people pivot away from drug abuse to drug use? There's a I'm not gonna remember the name of it, but there's a book that a that a Columbia University professor wrote who is a sociologist or psychologist or maybe psychiatrist, I can't remember, but he wrote about um, his own drug use. And and he's using hard drugs like heroin and stuff like that. But he wanted to be able to write about using drugs in a safe way. I mean That's Carl Hart. Yes. Carl Hart is the is the name of that professor. And his book is called Um Well and he was using heroin. Yeah. Um, that was the that was the drug of choice. Um and uh, his uh, his book is called uh, well I don't know I can't find it now but anyway Carl Hart Carl Hart is the name of the of that uh, that professor yeah and and so I you know like I just feel curious about you now look this is not an advertisement to go out and use but I think we do if we truly care about the world. And if we care about people who are fighting poverty, and if we care about people who are strapped to food stamps because they can't afford anything else, and those people are also using drugs or abusing drugs, what what is our response, right? I mean – we can continue to fight people who use and abuse drugs or we can figure out how to reduce harm and mitigate the problems through harm reduction, trauma-informed harm reduction work. 
Yeah. And I think that we don't, we don't have policies or local and state governments who in most cases have any interest in that work. I mean, Tennessee will put money into uncle nearest, you know, a premier Tennessee whiskey joint, but 30 miles into a rural area won't put any money into the opioid crisis. Right. That just, I'm like, so, so really what you're saying is that capitalism is the only thing that matters here. Correct. And, and I think, you know, that the state believes that and the pharmaceutical companies believe that. And in many instances, our politicians believe that. I mean, there's a reason that these, these drug companies have been able to get as big as they have. Right. Um, It is, it is because there have been no restrictions put on them um, by the federal government and lobbyists make money because they're able to get work done right, wrong or indifferent. Like they're earning their keep because even after the ACA is put into place and we're trying to get a handle on the cost of prescription drugs and the cost of healthcare for millions of Americans, we still have drug companies who are, in bed with yeah. the people within the walls of Congress. Yeah. Yeah. I'm stuck because I don't have, I have zero answers for, yeah. for anything that, that we've talked about today. And I, and I remain really challenged by what I saw on Saturday and, and feeling for this young man who uh, has a reason that, mm that drove him to it's not a good verb that that led him to overdose and then kind of create these series of of heartaches for people throughout the day um i i want so badly to feel as if i have the capacity or something in my being to do even a small act yeah, to contribute to the way that this can stop. And I, and I just simply don't, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things that's so big um, that you just have to, you have to start within your own community. You have to start within your own circle of friends and, you know, um, create those kinds of harm reduction relationships yeah. that allow us to, talk frankly with one another to be um, to, to be the keepers of one another in ways that is healthy and, and loving. Yeah. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I think about, I think about the different places where I teach and, you know, I think about how, A lot of theological communities or religious communities don't know how to have this conversation because everything's wrapped up in this kind of moral puritanism of there's a strict binary, rigid binary of good and bad. And I'm willing to have the conversations with students around like in my queer theory class, we talk about drug use and sex and gay male culture. And, you know, I, I just think starting there, like being able to have conversations about the ways in which culture is set up. I mean, so many, 
so many young gay men become addicted to things like crystal meth because of the euphoria it produces while having sex. And and then and then it often destroys their life. And and I, I'm wondering when are we going to start just having the conversations? Like, forget about be, being solution oriented because sure. that is wrapped up in white saviorism. Yes, but let's let's just try to have the conversations about how to care for people. If we don't know how to care for people, I don't know that we're going to be able to construct a solution that is rooted in harm reduction. Right. Yeah, I mean, so many of the churches that I have come in contact with that are engaged in this work, I put a little asterisk beside engaged because it really what they are is they are running um, 12-step programs. Right. You know, uh, and in some ways monopolizing their the 12-step programs through, you know, under the guise of the there's a massive movement in the country called recovery Right. And, you know, the recovery programs in these churches are, are huge. And I am, I am fully in support of processes like the 12 steps that allow people to find a, a centering and work through the processes of addiction in ways that then bring them to um, a renewed relationality with the people that they have lost through their addiction and with the capacity to then use those steps to move forward in their mm -hmm. lives. But so often these faith communities are, you know, using 12 step programs or the AA meetings and the NA meetings that they're having in their church as a checkoff box mm -hmm. of their role in mitigating circumstances like this, whereas... Well, it's also about trying to be an inclusive community. Well, right. Driven by identity politics. Well, sure. Because if they let the druggies in, then, you know, they'll, you know, they'll let anybody in, right? Right. Um, but so often, you know, these communities of faith forget that um, as individuals, it is as incumbent on them to be in relationship with those that are using their church Mm -hmm. for these things um, and or to have a different kind of uh, analytic around um, why those humans are there mm -hmm. and how those humans are receiving the, the care that they, that they need um, and checking off a box and, forcing yourselves to to find a way to just feel as if you're part of the solution versus mm -hmm. part of the problem is not going to get us anywhere. Right. Um, and I, all too many, all too many faith communities have completely missed the, the boat on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is why I think we need practices in place and obviously non-judgmental, non-anxious practices but as a culture, we don't know how to do that. And, and, you know, maybe this conversation is a step in that direction. Um, I, I mean, I, I remember in high school, I had a friend who, whose mom 
um, was a heroin addict and she came and lived with us for a bit and I didn't know anything about drugs. And here my friend had grown up with a parent who was a drug user and, um, an abuser and an addict and, and, you know, it was, it was really eye-opening for me. Um, and my response was to have compassion and I, I want to know how do we foster more compassion in the world? Because I think if we can have practices of compassion, I think we can respond differently to people who we other. Absolutely. Because of drug use or abuse. I mean, the, the variety of responses that I saw on Saturday from the people on the sidewalk as as this um, accident and then the subsequent, you know, caring for the driver and um, talking to police, as that transpired, the variety of responses that I've heard, especially as those people begun to hear the story about him seizing and ODing yeah. and then driving uh, was really difficult for me um, because there were humans whose vehicles were damaged, who were fuming, mm -hmm. furiously pissed off, um, walking over to the side of the car as the ambulance was trying, or the, the, the uh, first responders were trying to get this gentleman out and taking photos with their phone of him on mm. the stretcher so that they had, they were so mad they wanted like a face to put with their anger and to, you know, use in what they believed to be their future lawsuits. Um, you know, there were, there were people there who were extremely empathetic and really not worried at all about the materialism, the, the breaking of material things that happened during mm -hmm. that moment, but worried for him and, and, you know, who, who he, who he was and, and how he found himself here and, and, and care for his health and hoping that he would survive. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then there was everything in between. Yeah. And we are conditioned in a certain way. A lot of us are ridding ourselves of the ridicule and the judgment that we were brought up feeling as if we needed to express to people that were not like us or, or who allowed their self. My mom's favorite phrase is, you know, how did they allow themselves to get themselves in this position? Right. Like how, like how, how, how did they, you know, how did they allow this? Right. When the, the variables are wide and many, and there are, um, you know, really complicated stories behind every one of them. Um, I hope that all of you that are listening um, are less intimate with this topic than the story I shared today, but I fear that many of us are. We are all mm -hmm. impacted and, and know people who are suffering in these ways. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if we can continue to talk about it and if we can continue to be the kinds of people where who lead with empathy – and lead with love and lead with harm reduction, 
we can mm-hmm. be the kind of people who create the kind of community that we that we want to be in the world. Yeah, and I'm I feel curious about people who I mean, I had a colleague tell me this one time that they don't believe in empathy or compassion. They don't believe in those things. What? Yeah, and so I'm I feel curious about people who don't embrace that framework. What I mean, this is a tangent. What do they believe in? I mean, is it justice or uh, reciprocity? Like, what is what? I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't know, but it it stuck with me, right? It stuck with me. I you you bring up the question of justice. Um, I asked yesterday, "What is justice?" Um, on Twitter, and you know, I there's there's this whole sort of mentality of punitiveness which is our framework for justice. It's what we use here in the United States and largely in other places globally. And and I'm really curious about how do we do reparative justice? How do we do restorative justice? How do we do transformative justice? Because people who are using and abusing substances, they're, they people are doing that because – they are also trying to restore themselves. Right. And so if we can get out of this punitive framework and step into a more transformative framework, I think that we can revolutionize things. But, you know, it takes a village. It's going to take more than you and I having this conversation. And it's going to take real tangible practices. Right. May it be so. May we may we find ourselves at some point in a space where that's the world that we live in. Yeah. That's that's my hope for today. Yeah. So friends, do follow us on social media. Please let us know uh, what you think of these episodes. We've gotten some really great feedback on Apple Podcasts. There have been some people leaving some really beautiful reviews, and we love those, and we would love to have some more. Uh, we encourage you to reach out to us and join the app at atporch.com um, or uh, let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. Um, there are some weeks that Robin and I just stare at each other and think, hmm, what should we do? Um, but I have a feeling we're going to have some guests coming up and we're going to have some other topics that you're interested in. And we'd love for you to be here for that. Until next time, Dr. Robin. In the words of Desmond Tutu, let's become prisoners of hope. We want to thank you for listening this week. We encourage you to share this podcast with your community. If you enjoy us and our work in the world, please give us five stars on your podcast platform. Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.com and click on podcast. We can only do this work with the help of you, our listeners. You have no idea how much even a small monthly or one-time gift means to this work. The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by Delta Ray. Our sound editor is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. I get my hands dirty. I show up so early. They show me no mercy. So I just
You are listening to an irreverent podcast. Visit irreverent.fm for more content from our friends.